Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Here's a question for you. What is the most performed song of the last 100 years? Now think about that before you answer me. What song has been performed by more people more times than any other song in the last century? It's Happy Birthday. It's the most common, most recognized, and most universal song in the English language. Actually, it's more than just English. It's used in at least half a dozen other cultures. It's a simple melody with simple words. Simple sentiments. It's pretty universal and quite timeless. So here's the next question. Who wrote Happy Birthday? Someone must have, right? Well, the traditional answer is that Happy Birthday came from two American sisters, Patty and Mildred Hill. They were a couple of kindergarten teachers from Louisville, Kentucky. In 1893, they came up with a song for the children that they called Good Morning to You. Sometime after that, it morphed into Happy Birthday to You. And so began a copyright war that exists to this day. People have been fighting over the ownership of Happy Birthday since at least 1912. In 1990, Warner Chapel, the music publishing company, bought the rights to Happy Birthday for $5 million. They claim that the copyright to the song won't expire until 2030, which means that unauthorized public performances of Happy Birthday are illegal unless royalties are paid to them. This means whenever you hear Happy Birthday in a movie or a TV show, Warner Chapel is due money. According to those who keep track of such things, each performance of Happy Birthday on film or TV nets Warner Chapel $10,000. This is why I haven't sung it yet. This is also why many movies substitute the song for He's a Jolly Good Fellow during birthday party scenes. That song is in the public domain, no royalties. Instances of happy birthday in films and TV shows and documentaries have actually prevented them from being re-shown or re-released because the attendant copyright problems haven't been sorted out. And you know those restaurants where all the servers come and sing some kind of embarrassing song at your table when your buddy tells them that it's your birthday? Why do they sing some weird corporate song? So they don't have to sing Happy Birthday in public and be liable for copyright infringement. And here's the best part. If Happy Birthday is sung at, say, uh, a friend's birthday party in front of a bunch of people, that's considered to be a public performance. So technically, you and everybody else present owe Warner Chapel a royalty payment for singing over the cake. I wonder what happened when the crowd in Beijing sang happy birthday to Usain Bolt after he won his 200-meter gold medal in August of 2008. Of course, China's not going to pay copyright fees, but TV networks around the world picked up the singing. Did somebody have to pay for that? Ah. Oh, you're probably wondering why I went on such a rant. You're probably asking, Alan, what's the point of all this? Why are you going through the story of happy birthday? To illustrate a simple point. Behind every song, there's a story. And I've got more stories behind songs coming up. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Nirvana, and one of the most important songs of the 1990s, and in the history of rock and roll. And it was inspired by a brand of deodorants. 
Now, forgive me if you've heard this one before, but this story is a great way to set the tone for the rest of the show about stories behind songs. It goes like this. Kurt Cobain had been working on the song for a while. Teen Spirit was one of the songs for Nevermind, written long after the tracks were originally demoed. This is why few, if any, studio bootlegs exist, unlike pretty much everything else that's on the album. Kurt was looking to write a song in the style of the Pixies, which meant a lot of loud, soft, loud, soft dynamics. He later called the whole exercise an attempt to rip off the Pixies. Originally, it was much faster, much, much, much more punk rock. Kurt had the riff and the chorus, but really nothing else. When he and the rest of the band started rehearsing it, the song became slower in the verses. It was bass player Chris Novoselic that came up with that idea. And then Dave Grohl insisted on changing the drum beat. That worked too, and the song slowly started coming together. It's also why, unlike so many other Nirvana songs, all three members are credited as having written it. It's one of the few credits that Kurt shared. And then there's the matter of the title. See, Kurt had been hanging out with a woman named Kathleen Hanna of a very fierce all-girl punk band called Bikini Kill. One night, after some heavy discussions about punk, anarchy, and politics, and after much, much heavy drinking, Kurt and Kathleen retired to Kurt's apartment. It was there that Kathleen remarked that Kurt smelled like teen spirit. Now, you may or may not know this, but teen spirit is a fruity-smelling brand of deodorant that girls wear. It was also the deodorant of choice of Toby Vale, another member of Bikini Kill and Kurt's girlfriend at the time. So what Kathleen was saying was that the scent of Toby's fruity deodorant had rubbed off on Kurt. He smelled like teen spirit. And to continue the teasing, she spray-painted the words, Kurt smells like teen spirit on the wall of his apartment. Now, Kurt, who never wore deodorant apparently, and thus was not very well versed in the choices that one could make in the drugstore, thought this was simply a continuation of the earlier discussion of punk and politics. He thought Kathleen was actually paying him a compliment. It wasn't until months after the song came out that Kurt figured out what she really meant. Or so he says. In the end, there were three takes for Smells Like Teen Spirit in the studio. They might have done more, but Kurt's voice was shot from all the yelling and the screaming. So what we hear is essentially the middle one, take two of three. Smells Like Teen Spirit was released as a single on September 10th, 1991. And, uh, well, you know the rest. Hello, I'm Alan Cross. And I have a lot of stories like this for this edition of the Ongoing History of New Music. It's another Stories Behind Songs episode. We're going to translate some lyrics next. It was 1976. The Sex Pistols and the song that Johnny Rotten wrote to express his disgust at the state of Britain in the 1970s. It was released on November 26th, 1976, and has gone down in history as the second ever punk rock single in the UK. Anybody know the first? Anyone? A song called New Rose by the Damned. Anyway, I think everyone can agree that anarchy in the UK still rocks after 30-some years. But there are aspects of the song that are very British and don't make a lot of sense to people outside the country or outside of that era back in the 1970s. The biggest source of confusion for non-Brits are all the initials that Johnny uses in the lyrics, and that's what I want to translate for you. 1970s Britain was not a very happy place. The economy was awful. There were strikes everywhere, and a lot of young people had lost hope. Uh, 
Meanwhile, the class system was as strong as ever, even as the muddy British Empire continued to crumble. Now, some homegrown paramilitary operations were in the news. There were bombings and killings and kidnappings. It really did seem as if anarchy had come to the UK. The first set of initials that Johnny uses is the NME. He's not talking about the enemy. He means the New Musical Express, one of the big weekly British music papers. He was saying that he used that form of media to spread his brand of anarchy. Then he mentions the MPLA. This is the Popular Movement for the Liberation of Angola. Yes, the country in Africa. This group had violently driven out the Portuguese in 1975, creating an independent Angolan state. They were not a nice bunch of people. They were supported by communist buddies in the USSR, China, and other places. And they basically took the country by creating anarchy. Johnny also mentions the UDA. This was the Ulster Defense Association, a terrorist group in Northern Ireland. They were loyal to England and rejected any attempts to unify the North with the Republic of Ireland. Again, not very nice people. They bombed and they shot and they killed those who got in their way. And they didn't end their campaign of violence until 2007. Finally, there's the IRA, the Irish Republican Army. Their aim was to overthrow the government of Northern Ireland by whatever means necessary. And they were the sworn enemies of the UDA. So you can see that there was lots of anarchy at the time, both at home and abroad. Johnny Rotten was just running about what he saw and read in the newspapers. Funny thing is that when the band Megadeth covered Anarchy in the UK in 1998, singer Dave Mustaine didn't quite understand all the words that Johnny was singing, so he made up a few new ones. You can go and check the lyrics and compare and you'll see what I mean. U2's first big single was I Will Follow. What the hell is Bono on about? A lot of people have never been able to make sense of what he's singing. Well, let's hear it first, and I want you to listen to the lyrics. And then we'll sort it all out. I Will Follow, the U2 song that began on September 10th, 1974. Wait, okay, the song did not come out until 1980. And let's see, 1974, Bono would have been about 13... What's going on? Well, here's what happened. On September 10th, 1974, Iris Hewson, Bono's mum, gathered the family together and went to the funeral for her father, Bono's grandfather. A few days earlier, Bob and Iris, Bono's parents, had just celebrated their 25th wedding anniversary at a Dublin hotel. And Iris's dad was there, and he had a great time. The old man was dancing and laughing and drinking. He really enjoyed himself. At the end of the night, they put him to bed. And sometime before morning, he had a heart attack and he died. Now, Iris, being the oldest, was suddenly put in charge of arranging the funeral and the burial. The emotional low coming off this great celebration must have been incredible. And she showed it. She was very, very shaky. A couple of days later, everyone gathered at the gravesite to watch Grandfather Alex being buried. And that's when Iris fainted. And it wasn't just a regular faint. It was a cerebral hemorrhage. She hung on for four days before finally dying. Bono's dad gave the word to turn off the life support machines because she had been declared brain dead. All that was left of the family was Bono, his brother Norman, and his father Bob. Three hardcore Irish bachelor types. And they were suddenly being forced to make it on their own. 
This naturally had a huge psychological effect on Bono. He became very angry and very confused. He became something of a loner and a bit of a strange kid, and for a while, he was in a pretty dark place. This is where I Will Follow comes from. It's rooted in the idea of the unconditional love a mother has for a son. But it also talks about what happens when a son walks away, or rather is taken away from a mother. Bono is actually singing the song from his mother's point of view, and if you read it a certain way, it almost sounds like a suicide note. Bono acknowledges that, by the way. The song itself came out of a very loud and very violent argument that Bono had with The Edge during rehearsals. The Edge was being too gentle with the guitar parts, apparently, so Bono ripped the guitar away from him and said, No! Play it this way! Or so he says. In a second, we're going to look at a couple of happy accidents, things that happened in the studio that resulted in some very unintended consequences. Hold on. We're back with another program that looks at the hidden stories behind some of the biggest songs you know. And here's a classic that resulted from being a drunk. One of the most enduring alt-rock songs of the 80s is She Sells Sanctuary by The Cult. It was the big single from their Love album from 1985. Up until that record came out, The Cult went by two other names. They were known as Southern Death Cult for one album and Death Cult for another. But by the end of 1983, they were down to just The Cult. An album came out in 84, but it didn't do much because, like the first two records, it was all heavy and gothy and pretty niche when it came to its appeal. But then something happened with the second album that came out under the name The Cult. It was cleaner and leaner than the other records. It was produced better, with a mix of guitar heft and psychedelia. The songwriting was sharper, and the song that stood out the most was buried deep on the record. You didn't get to She Sells Sanctuary until track 9 on the CD. That would be deep on side two on the album. The song was recorded in March of 1985 with drummer Nigel Preston. Nigel, however, had a serious drinking problem and was becoming more and more unreliable. Not only would he show up late to recording sessions, but sometimes he'd be so drunk that he couldn't play. The night his parts for Sanctuary were being recorded, he was drinking whiskey out of a brown paper bag, getting drunker and drunker and drunker, and the more he drank, the worse his playing got. With no other option, singer Ian Asper and guitarist Billy Duffy started taking away pieces of his drum set, hoping that they could just get him to do the basic stuff. By the time they were done, there was just a snare drum, a bass drum, and some hi-hats. That's it. And with so little to play on, there was little to play, if that makes sense. The result was a song that was much more rhythmic, much more straight ahead than anything the cult had ever done. Just a flat 4-4 beat with a few snare fills. That's it, because there was nothing else to play. But it worked. Just listen carefully to the end. The Cult and She Sells Sanctuary, featuring some very, very, very basic drumming from Nigel Preston. It's basic because he was so drunk, that's all he could play. Although Sanctuary and the Love album were major hits for The Cult, Nigel wasn't invited to stick around. He was fired soon after all his parts were recorded. The drummer we see in the video for Sanctuary is a dude named Mark Bracecki, who was on loan from the band Big Country. And Nigel is no longer with us, by the way. He died in 1992. But his legacy with the cult lives on. The next happy accident involves Radiohead. If you've heard this one already, you know where I'm going. If not, check it out. The second Radiohead single got off to a bad start. 
Tom York had written the first version while he was still at university. He was in the middle of this drinking binge, and he was feeling rather maudlin about his chances with girls. So, yes, if you've always thought that this song sounds like it was written in an alcoholic stupor brought on by the self-pity that results when you're unable to get anybody to have sex with you, you're absolutely right. See, Thomas, all googly over a girl that he used to see in the cafes and bars around Oxford, England, he spent eight months pining from afar. And all that unrequited love came out in the lyrics. Thomas never said who the girl is, but he has said that she knows who she is. Tom hid the song from the rest of the band because he thought it was so wimpy. And when he finally presented it at rehearsal, guitarist Johnny Greenwood could not hold back. He said, this, mate, sucks. I hate this song. It's weak, it's whiny, it sucks. But Johnny was outvoted, and the song was taken into the studio anyway. But Johnny hated the song so much that he was determined to sabotage everything. He kept inserting these loud, grinding scratches across the guitar strings just before the chorus. He was just being a jerk. He was trying to piss everybody off so that they would just abandon the idea and move on to something else. But the result was one of those weird, serendipitous moments in music. When Radiohead ran through the song in preparation for a proper take, their producer secretly pressed record. What we all ended up hearing was Radiohead recorded in secret. Johnny's attempts at sabotage included. And naturally, it changed everything. But I'm a creep I'm a Radiohead, with their first major hit, and now a classic song from the 1990s. Who knows where they might be today had guitarist Johnny Greenwood actually liked the song, or if that producer hadn't secretly decided to record the warm-up. I have another example of producer skullduggery that worked. When The Clash were getting ready to record their London Calling album late in the summer of 1979, they went into the studio with producer Guy Stevens, and the first song they decided to work on was called Brand New Cadillac. As they were warming up, Stevens hit record, and when it was all over, he simply said, That's it. That's a take. Next! Clash was a little confused. I said, Dude, it's, it's sloppy. Listen to the tempo. It's all wrong. Listen to how we speed up. Stevens said, Hey, all rock and roll speeds up. Next. That set the tone for the rest of London Calling. And we got uh, <laughs> one of the best records in the history of rock. Let's play Brand New Cadillac. Listen to how the song speeds up. And remember, The Clash does not know that they're on tape. The Clash, getting it all wrong, messing up their meter, but cranking out a classic in the meantime. The same sort of thing happened to Blur when they were recording their 1997 self-titled album. See, Blur was really, really tired of the whole Britpop thing, and they wanted to do something completely different. Guitarist Graham Coxon had gotten deep into the American indie scene, especially with lo-fi stuff from bands like Pavement, and he thought that should be Blur's new direction. Weirdly, just about everyone agreed with him, which is why the fifth Blur record sounded so different than the Britpop stuff that came before it. The second song on this album is called Song 2, and it was always called Song 2 because they never got around to giving it a proper title. Yes, it's the second song on the record, and yes, it's two minutes and two seconds long, and yes, it reached number two in the British charts, but all those things are just coincidences. Here's the real story. It took less than 30 minutes to finish. 
Like brand new Cadillac, it was performed and recorded in real time. Two drum kits were set up facing each other and were purposely tuned to make them sound cheap and trashy. Graham played one and drummer Dave Roundtree played the other. It was also decided that they'd play only the most basic stuff in the verses and then really go to town on the chorus. Singer Damon Albarn had nothing but a few scraps of lyrics prepared, but feeling the need to do something, he ad-libbed all the parts where he went, Woo-hoo! No one knew they were coming, but they sounded good, so they, they kept them. Turns out those ad hoc woo-hoos were worth millions and millions of dollars. Not only has Song 2 become Blur's all-time most enduring hit, but it's been covered by at least a dozen other acts. It's been licensed for use in TV commercials for Toyota, BMW, Labatt, Intel, video games, movie trailers, TV shows. It's also played at just about every single sporting event that you can imagine, from soccer to football to hockey to baseball, amateur and professional. The only place where the song didn't reach was a commercial for the U.S. military. Damon Albarn refused to let them have it. And to think that all of that came from the fact that Damon showed up in the studio completely unprepared for his vocal bits and just decided to go, woohoo! Blur, with a song that was written and recorded in less than half an hour and ended up making them millions upon millions of dollars. In a moment, we'll look at the opposite, a song that took forever to come together, but when it did, <laughs> wow. Here's the story behind a song that has somehow become a Christmas favorite, although it's not really about Christmas at all. It's the Pogues and Fairy Tale of New York. It first started to come together as a piece sometime in 1985 by Jim Finer, the Pogues banjo player. He showed it to singer Shane McGowan, and for the next two years, they struggled with it. The melody was fine, but the lyrics weren't. It dealt with a sailor going to sea and distant oceans and all that, but it was crap. Shane couldn't figure out what to do in order to record the song for Christmas of that year, so they blew it off and went to tour America. When everyone got back to England sometime around March of 1986, the song had changed from being about a lonely sailor to a fight between a drunken couple on Christmas Eve. Part of the inspiration came from a book that Shane had read on tour called A Fairy Tale of New York, which dealt with an Irish dude returning to New York after going to school in Ireland. The next version was better than the first, but not good enough. Besides, the Pogues really couldn't find anybody they liked to sing the female part. It had been written for Kate O'Reardon, the Pogues bass player, but uh, she had run off with Elvis Costello, so that shelved the song for Christmas 1986. In March of 1987, the Pogues tried to record it again, this time with Shane singing both the male and female parts, just as a way of getting something down on tape. Those sessions were part of what became the Pogues' third album, which was called If I Should Fall from Grace with God. The producer was a guy named Steve Lillywhite. He had helped U2 with their first three albums. Now, Steve was married to a singer named Kirsty McCall, and in August of 1987, he offered to take the rough cut of the song to her so she could at least substitute her parts for the female bits done by Shane. Steve brought her into the studio one night to do her bits, and then she went home to look after the kids. When Shane and the Pogues heard the results, they were very surprised. Shane redid his parts, and Steve put everything together. As you listen to this, remember that although the song was written as a duet and sung as a duet, Shane and Kirsty were never ever in the same studio together. The boys of the Emily Pinnacle 
The Pogues, with a song that took more than two years to write and record. Not very Christmassy in the traditional sense, but still one of the biggest alt-rock Christmas songs ever, if not of all time. There are so many things that go into writing a song. For those of us who can't do it, the whole thing seems to be a mystery. Where does the inspiration come from? How does it coalesce into something we can all hear? And even then, a songwriter can never, ever predict how the song will be received. Blur was just goofing around when they came up with Song 2. The cult were trying to tame a drunken drummer with She Sells Sanctuary. There was a mutiny in Radiohead during the recording of Creep. And if Kurt Cobain had known more about personal hygiene products, we may never have had Smells Like Teen Spirit. Technical production from this one is by Rob Johnston. And thanks to Natalia and Adam, too. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.